Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. We live in a digital world, we communicate online, our kids can use computers better than most adults and I don't think I've used physical money in about a year. So where do you think dentistry is going? I tend to agree with Dr. Ahmad Al-Hassani. It's digital and the time is now. But where and how do you start? What if you're an associate? Dr. Ahmad is from the Institute of Digital Dentistry. He lives and breathes this frontier of dentistry. If you're in New Zealand, you can go to Wellington and do his live course at the end of June. Check out cpdjunkie.com.au to find that course. If not, his online academy will kickstart your digital dentistry career. It's not just pros and aligners. Digital dentistry is the cutting edge of almost every facet of dentistry. In fact, I had a scan of my teeth done, digitally set up the orthodontic case, and I'm just about to approve the plan. In the end of this podcast, we have the OrthoEd segment where we speak again with Dr. Jeff Hall from OrthoEd. He's come on the podcast again to do the final rundown on my ClinCheck. If you want to see what we're talking about, you can go to YouTube or you can go to dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed. You'll find all of the orthoed segments there and you can follow along me, myself, getting aligners and going through the process as well as what I'm learning from orthoed doing their mini masters course. If you're interested in learning more, you can get 10% off the entire range of orthoed courses if you're five years or less out of dental school. Find the codes on our website. They've got online content and of course, live courses. For now, let's start this journey with what we all hate about physical impressions. It brings back some memories of definitely suppressed, that's for sure. Now, the funny thing about impressions is that it's, I find personally, it's, it's a factor of dentistry that no one actually really likes to do. I mean, I, I don't know a single dentist who likes to take impressions. It's, it's probably the least enjoyable thing of our job. Um, and that's true. I mean, I fondly remember back in dental school in my fifth year, uh, dreading dreading proslab because of full impressions for denture patients i used to dread it and um purely because of gagging and i'm sure a lot of people feel the same you know impressions are one of those things in dentistry at you know your stomach sinks that, that takes me back to my <laughs> full on full case so thank totally you. man we all feel the same it's it's not a fun thing to go through when the patient is gagging and you, and you don't know what to do and you you can't pull out the impression material that's a mess um let alone in private practice, um, for instance, in big cases, you know, you've just sold a big case and you're trying to do everything flawlessly. And the last thing you want is to stumble on the last hurdle and have a, a gagging mess or have to retake the impression two, three, four times. It's, it's a disaster, really. Um, and I think that in itself is the benefits of getting into scanners. It just makes dentistry so much easier. Uh, the fact that they're additive and you can easily edit and, and remove and add bits of the scan. So if you're doing six or 10 units and, and you scan all of them and there's a bit of blood on a margin, you can easily just edit that part and, and rescan that single part. It's so much quicker. And compare that to an impression where if you get an air bubble on a margin, that's it, game over. You have to wait another five minutes and do it again and apologize to the patient. And then if that second one doesn't go right, Man, that's a bad feeling. And I think we've all been there. Um, and the interesting thing is, is any fears about accuracy, those are long gone now. Maybe in the first generation scanners, yes, they were very technique sensitive. Um, there was a lot of questioning. But these days, no, the scanners, are they're here to stay and they're just getting better and better with time. So how do we get started in 
in digital dentistry in scanners? What's the first that, step? That's, that's a great question. And it's one that I get asked all the time, almost every week, you know, where do I start? What do I do? Uh, and that's exactly why we started the Institute of Digital Dentistry, because it's the same questions that we had 10 years ago. And the tricky thing is when you ask the sales reps, they all obviously tell you that their product is the best and we can't hate on them too much. It's their livelihood. So that's what they're going to do. You know, it's, they're in that business. Um, the good news is with digital dentistry now is to start, you need a scanner, basically some form. You need to take digital impressions. That's your starting building block. And from there, you can do endless things. And that's either going to be a lab scanner, which not common for dentists, or an intraoral scanner. And, and these days, there's a huge range. Um, you can go from spending anywhere between, you know, 14 to 15 grand for some of these cheap Chinese scanners to up to 70 to 80 grand for the ones that, you know, people on this side of the world are more familiar with, like the Itero and the Serac and the Triosis. So realistically, the way you start digital dentistry is you have to get a scanner. And, and that's the next part, which one do I get? Uh, and that's part of the reason why we have all these reviews and, and product information on our website. Because we're very lucky. We just purchased all the scanners. with these passionate dentists who just have them all in our practice. So being not linked with any company, I can really say whatever I like about them. I don't have to worry about any NDA or whatever. So with the scanners, really, the first thing you need to figure out is what do you need a scanner for and what your budget is. That's the first things you need to figure out. So CAD cam and milling in-house, it's amazing. I love it. I do it daily in my practice, but it's not for everyone. And that's not the market. The majority of the market want to send to a lab. Uh, I, have a, you know, I have to pick a bone with sending to a lab because I don't really see that as taking the full advantage of digital dentistry. But if that's what you want to do, perfectly fine. It, if you figure out what you want to use a scanner for, then you can quickly narrow down which scanner to buy. For instance, if you just want a scanner for scanning and sending to a lab, the most common ones nowadays are things like the Meta, the Trios 3 Basic. These are the entry option scanners. They're cheap. They just scan and send to a lab. There's no design, CAD design software, anything like that. How much are we yeah. looking for for those? Uh, the new Medit, I mean, Medit just released their new i700 scanner, and that's around 20,000 USD, give or take. And the older one, which also works quite well, which is the Medit i500, they've reduced the price now, but it used to be 18,000 USD. So let's say 17 to 20,000. Um, and that's pretty much as entry as you're going to get. And that's how you start. You get a scanner. Now, the thing about scanners like that is what you need to figure out is why do you need it if you want to do CAD cam dentistry you are better off getting something that's got an integrated workflow because with these cheaper scanners what they often are they're just a scanner and then you're left to if you want to do CAD cam dentistry you have to get a CAD software and a mill and tie it all together and it can feel a bit piecemeal a lot of dentists they just want something that's going to work and so right on the other side of the spectrum is the CEREC. So the CEREC for a whole system, new prime scan, new prime mill is around 200K New Zealand dollars, give or take. Um, and that's like a whole system packaged up. So scanner, design, and milling machine. And then you go everything in between. So for instance, if you are an Invisalign practice, 
you get an itero. That's just the way it is. Or a Trios 3 basic, because Invisalign will not accept any scans from prime scans, from medits or anything. And they do that on purpose, obviously, to promote their own scanners. So they've closed off to all other scanner companies. Um, if you want to go on a budget and kind of start with something cheap and, and maybe build out, you'd look at, okay, what does your practice do? Do you do a lot of implants? Do you want to do a lot of guides? In my opinion, if you for uh, implant-heavy practice, Trios Implant Studio, which is a three-shape software, is one of the best in the industry. You just can't beat it. So for us in our practice, I'll give you an example of how we use our scanners when we have them all in the practice. If I'm going to do a same-day crown or any same-day dentistry, I use the CEREC. And that's not a merit of the scanner itself. It's the workflow. Because like I said, all the scanners work now. They all work. They're all fine. So it's the workflow. The CEREC workflow with the mill, with the design software, just works flawlessly for same-day dentistry. It's a breeze. My DAs can do a lot of the designing these days and staining and glazing. You just really check things off. If I'm going to do any sort of implant work, implant guides, restoring implants, I personally like to use the TRIO software, especially for implant guides. I really like the uh, implant studio. And for a lot of you guys who are sending uh, your scans or impressions to companies, a lot of them use the implant studio for guides. You'll find a lot of the labs use implant studio. It's just one of the best. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you and then you get into so, sort of the more other variations and 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 other branches of that. So, like I mentioned, ITER. If you're in, you're if you're in Invisalign heavy practice, ITER is the way to go. That's just the way it is. And uh, ITER doesn't just do Invisalign. It does restorative and everything. But it's priced so high at the premium end of the market. The new ITER is about 70 grand New Zealand dollars. So, and that's with no design software. It can be tied up with Exocat, but that's no design software. So what you're paying for really is the Itera name, the brand, the, the workflow, the carries detection and... The Invisalign integration, the, yeah. <laughs> the Invisalign integration, that's what you're paying for. And, and there's all sorts of other things. And that's why I recommend people look at these reviews that we've posted out because you quickly realize, you know, what are you interested in? Do you want carries detection? If you don't really care about that, you know, you can cut out a few scanners. If you just want the cheapest way to get into it. So how do I get in the cheapest possible way? I just want to dip my toes into it. You really can't beat trying a meta scanner. It's $18,000 and no subscription fees. And you can start scanning and see if you, if you like the whole process. The other thing with digital dentistry and scanners, and I always recommend this to people, is these days these reps want to sell their scanners. And so just ask. Ask, I want a loaner. Don't be afraid to ask for that. Get a loaner into your practice. Get all the loaners if you want to. Get an Itero loaner. Get a Medit loaner. Get a Trios loaner. Trust me, you just stand your ground and they will give you one. They want to sell. And try them. Try them in the practice because although Medit is fantastic for a cheap entry option, it's not for everyone. That's just the way it is. And, and it's not until you try them in the clinic, you can quickly make a decision. Yeah, I think that last piece is a really good piece of information because if you, you try it, you drive a car before you buy it, right? Exactly. Um, it makes sense if you're spending these, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Sorry to interrupt. 
but how do you make the most out of your CPD? I think the first step is to make sure you've chosen the right CPD and how do you know that unless you've seen it all? cpdjunkie.com.au is made so that all of the dental CPD in Australia and New Zealand is in the one place. We've got all of the webinars, all of the live courses coming up on the website, easy to find and easy to filter. And the second step, well, it's all in the free ebook on their website, cpdjunkie.com.au, the home of Australian dental CPD. Thank you for supporting dental students and graduates and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. Ahmed, it sounds like you run the dream practice that you own uh, with all that, <laughs> all those scanners and options. But obviously, it's not always one size fits all. It depends on what you're doing. Um, now, a lot of our audience is uh, or are associates, and they may be in a practice where they don't have the access. It, obviously, you know, cheaper range scanner may be a medit to start. But do you have any specific advice for those people? Yeah, and it is a tricky one. Look, realistically, if you want to get into digital dentistry the, the hard thing for associates i mean our ones are spoiled for choice they just have every scanner <laughs> every new yeah. scanner but for these other guys who are listening if you want to get into digital dentistry and your clinic is not in there at all and they're not interested in getting into it and they're not going to invest and you've had this chat well sadly you may need to consider your your job i mean <laughs> if really that's your passion look there's a lot of really top guys all over Australia and New Zealand, it's not just us. There's a lot of top digital dentists mm. and quite a few run big practices. You might want to consider if that's really your passion, what you want to get into. The best way to learn is mentorship. That's tried and tested. Mm. And that's an interesting point. I actually chose the practice I work in because of um, they had digital orientated. The CEREC practice, we have CBCT, we have ITRO. So yeah. very fortunate as well, but I actually specifically chose for those reasons. Exactly. You just got to know what you want to and, and go for it for these associates, especially the young guys uh, that are starting their, their careers. Because seriously, guys, it's like a trajectory, you know. Any, any changes early on in your career will vastly change your you know, your whole career five years down. If you get a good mentor in the first two or three years and you have the perfect work environment and all the toys, you know, you could be really proficient at digital dentistry within two, three years uh, versus, you know, delaying things. But look, failing that, say you love your boss and you don't want to leave him and you don't have a scan, you really have two options. And there's only two options. You either invest yourself. So you get a minute, uh, you save up some money, you pay 20,000 bucks, or $18,000 or get one second hand and you just buy it yourself, much like someone would buy some other equipment. Now, that's a stretch for a lot of people. The other thing you can do really is buy CAD software. And there's a few free CAD software, and that's to dip your toes into the CAD designing side of things. But realistically, before getting to something like that, the most important thing is just to wrap your head around this intraoral scanning business. And the sad truth is, is that you know, there's still some resistance from some of these practices. They, they're not really interested in advancing. And if you don't have a scanner yet, you either buy one or you go to a practice that has one. Mm-hmm. What about a um, tabletop scanner, lab scanner, um, tying it in with CAD software just to get your toes wet? Like I'm, I love digital dentistry, so I would do that just for fun. Um, but is there any like practicality there or is that not really a good idea? Yeah, look, and, and, and that also can be a good option. Some of these tabletop scanners are cheaper. Um, you can take your conventional impressions and, and then scan them that way. But realistically, and in my mind, uh, a lot of these tabletop scanners, they're, they're designed for labs. 
and they tie in with lab software and that sort of stuff. So it's, it gets a little convoluted. Uh, a lot of people are trying to start with digital dentistry. The first logical step for them is to start with intraoral scanning, especially cl clinicians. Um, I mean, if, if there's tech technicians listening, that's, that's a whole separate story for you guys. But if I assume mainly dentists and, and even specialists, if you're trying to start with digital dentistry, the first logical step is to get a scanner. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, um, as I said, I'm pretty interested in it. But for most people, that doesn't actually help because in the end, what's amazing about digital scanning is that you can cut and edit your, your scan or you can, it's just so much clearer and easier and more straightforward for both you and the patient. Um, any other final points on, you know, getting started for anyone, um, owners or associates? I would really say the final point is, especially for anyone who sees themselves still practicing dentistry for the next 10, 10 years, you need to jump in and you need to jump in quick. Uh, just, just don't look back. Um, I have never, we train a lot of people online, thousands of dentists, and we train people hands-on in our institute here. And I have direct dealings with people who have invested hundreds of thousands to CAD CAM machines, and I've been, I'm yet to find anyone who regrets that decision. I mean, it will just completely change your practice. Uh, the ROI is there. It improves dentistry for you, for your team. You, improve, you open up this avenue of team training, empowering your team. Um, these, you know, it opens up workflows that you never thought were possible. So really the final point is that anyone who's even – considering digital dentistry and that consideration is getting more and more by the year a lot more people are trying to jump into this really just just get in you don't want to be left behind and the the easiest way to get in and if you really want to save as much money as possible is just get a secondhand scanner get a secondhand scanner and the, and the way you can check that a, a scanner's you know you can check how many scans it's done so don't get something that's you know in the hundreds of thousands or it's been beaten up um, but you'll find a lot of some, some dentists, um, unfortunately, without the right support, have bought these scanners and then they just sit there collecting dust and, and they sell them. And they sell them for cheap sometimes. So keep your eyes peeled and, and get into it. Another good point. Um, one last question. When's the last time you took a PVS impression? Dental school. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I may have taken, I've taken about 20 uh, in my career, um, you know, so, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, no, dental school. I was very, very fortunate though. My, my father is a dentist and, and he runs these practices. We, we run them together and he's very passionate. He's, I, I give him all the, all the, what's the word? All the credit. All, yeah, all all, the, yeah. I give him all the credit. That's the one. Um, and Really, I was fortunate in the sense that I, I worked with him. And so when I started working with him, he's really into digital. So I adopted it straight out of the bat. And, and it's just done, it's opened up so many avenues for me that I thought were not possible or too difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, including obviously the Institute of Digital Dentistry based out of New Zealand, online content, um, live courses um, in, is it Auckland? Is that right? Um, oh, sorry, in Wellington. Um, one coming up, I think, in June. So if you're in New Zealand and you're interested, um, act pretty quickly. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, Dr. Ahmad Al Hassani. Thanks, mate. And thanks for having me on the show. So welcome to the AuthoEd segment. Again, we're joined by Dr. Jeff Hall. How are you today, Jeff? I'm well, David. How are you? 
I'm very well, thanks. We're finally getting around to, to finalizing my treatment plan for my mouth. So we're looking at my case. If you're on the podcast, check this out on YouTube or on dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed. Um, what we're looking at today, we're just finalizing a few things. Jeff went through, if you haven't already heard them, Jeff went through a few things about diagnosis, risks, and some of the initial treatment plans. We have decided to remove my 3-2. And as we then do that, the staging, we're moving the canine and 3-1 first so they have space. We're then going to put some mesial root tip to called cable bends to counteract some of the tipping that may occur. Um, what we want to look at today is just the final little bits. We want to talk about some of the attachments. Um, one of the first things I wanted to um, ask is each of the attachments on these teeth, I haven't changed them a lot, but I wanted Jeff to just quickly talk through what he sees on each attachment and what we should be thinking about with each of the movements. So, Jeff, you can take over and have a look at those. Okay. I think if we, if, if we bring it down to some basic principles, Whenever we're looking at a mesial distal movement in, in, in any form, we should be looking more at vertical attachments. And if we're looking at vertical movements, we look at horizontal attachments. Mm. So the first thing that I can see here, and let's just, let's just have a look at the lower arch here, that what I want to see is on this lower, on this lower central incisor, I want to see a very long vertical attachment to control the tipping. Otherwise, you've got nothing to control the tipping. So the fact that you've got this very minimal attachment is basically going to do absolutely little. So even a five millimetre attachment, the longer the better, and the same would apply to these canines as well because we need to control it. And so when we move these teeth across, this is really good. What, what you just said before, David, is so correct. We want to make sure that we've got total encapsulation of the mesiodistal surface of the teeth. And that's going to also add to our control in any of our mesodistal movements and control the tipping. So this part is absolutely perfect, and this part is absolutely perfect as well. So Can I ask two questions about that? Is really good. Um, so here, but, but I would like to see much much longer attachments on these teeth. I'll, the bevel that you've got on this on this canine is good because the bevel means you're pushing from the distal. Mm which is perfect, but there's no real bevel here on, the, on this central incisor. So I'd like to see a bevel more on the mesial mm-hmm. because whenever you've got a bevel, and we're going to discuss that with some of the other attachments, it's far more forgiving than having just a straight edge because as soon as the aligner stops catching that edge, it stops being effective. So having a bevel, you've got more surface area to be able to push against and therefore it's a far more forgiving type of attachment which is something from a building point of view myself as a clinician first learning about that it was something that was a bit counterintuitive i i was thinking all right so the bevel maybe to help you get it out maybe and then you push on the flat surface but that actually doesn't work so as soon as it disengages you lose the whole movement i found that really um important yeah look it, it, it does work but if it doesn't work, it's you, you're basically stuffed. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So it's just it works until it doesn't. <laughs> That's exactly right. So Can I ask uh, two questions just about the three one and three three? First yep. question is: Do we want the um, the 
vertical attachment on 3.1, is it best to have it as far gingival as possible to help with the root movement? Absolutely. And yes. so obviously as long as possible, but also as gingival as possible. The yes. second question is, and when we look at the canine movement, it's rotating quite significantly and extruding. Would we then move that attachment perhaps um, at an angle to counteract to add for both movements? You could, you could do, but you've got to decide what's the most important movement. Okay. And I think the most important move in this case is getting the root in the right position. Yep. So he's going to be tipping. So to me, because you are so overwhelmed with that part of the movement, I'll, I would just still go with your long vertical attachment. And then if you've got to do some more correction down the track, mm. you can always change that attachment into a horizontal or a sash attachment that we're going to talk about. And you can do that in your refinement. Because yeah, that's you have a good to point. assume there will be a refinement here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a good point too. Um, with that, it, that canine again is going to be one where we have a risk of it not tracking. That's is there exactly. any tips you can give us about ensuring it does track or getting it back on track perhaps? Okay. Well, I think the first thing that is what you've done is perfect is by having that space mesodistal mm. and encapsulating it. That really is the key and and obviously the um and obviously the um, the type of attachment. Now, to get to get to get it tracking better, patient needs to use the chewies, okay, or a vibration machine. You know, um, I was speaking to a really good orthodontist in America called Donna Galante, who was actually one of my old instructors in Philadelphia. And Donna was Donna was saying to me, in their practice, they use V Pro, which is, mm. and they have found that. The seating is so much better of the alignments. And so tracking is obviously the key to it. But, but I think the other point is what's a contingency plan if that doesn't rotate properly? So we could do some simple things where we could do, let's say, let's say that it doesn't it doesn't rotate, it stops rotating. We could do a little button cutout here. We can just get a little plot, we can get special pliers, we could, we could do a cutout, mm. we put a little button on there. And we just run some power chain from that tooth to, to this other tooth here, okay? And we can help to rotate that tooth at the same time and get it back into the aligner. So mm. as soon as you stop seeing it tracking, you can do all of that. And in fact, you know, we're, we're putting on an advanced course at the end of the year and we're going to show you different types of attachments that we can use where we can actually bond these long attachments and we can have them right down here and we mm. move the roots together because one of your biggest issues with all the line of therapy is the tipping of the teeth. Now, we're going to try and overcorrect it, but moving the roots together is always a challenge with aligners. Mm. Yeah, it can still be a challenge with fixed braces too, I might add, but we've got a lot more flexibility with regards to, the, to braces. So we can incorporate what we call ciliary appliances to, resolve, to help resolve that issue. I think just pointing something like that out, you know, the fact that we can use auxiliary techniques and other things than just the aligners, I think is just a crucial part of why we should learn more than just aligner therapy. And that's, yeah, that's what I like about, you know, what I'm learning with you. And that's yep. that's why a more comprehensive course makes sense. Well, so that's let's, you're right because, you know, I think we've dumbed down aligners too much. And it is, mm. it's just, it, all it is, is just another way of moving teeth, but we still got to make the right diagnosis which comes down to what we talked about in one of the previous sessions. You know, I think your first clinic, if I remember correctly, was 
a non-extraction approach. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's still up to the clinician to make that decision. You know, and when, and when I was looking at the table of movements, when we do a non-extraction approach and we look at the buccolingual movements, basically we're moving the three one and four one actually slightly lingually, bringing it back into the bone, and the fourth and the four two four three. Well, the four three in particular is just being moved out minimally buckling. Mm. Now, if we go back to, can we bring up your original treatment plan for a second? So, your four three was being moved one point six millimeters buckling mm. in mm. your previous in, in your previous approach. And, and look you, at four five is three three point two. You can imagine how far that's moving outside of the bone. Yeah, but that's that's if you can even do that. Mm. Because if you can't do that, let's say. Because realistically, you probably get about fifty percent of the expansion that you build into. It. What mm. that will then mean is you've got program 0.3 millimeters per contact point of IPR. Now that's based on 3.6 millimeters of posterior expansion. So if we only get 1.6, which is probably you know more predictable for you, that means I'm going to have to do 0.5 or 0.6 millimeters of IPR, mm. and this where this whole concept of the IPR that the aligner company shows you is total garbage because it's all based on this prediction and this prediction will not happen. So there's more IPR than what you're being told to do in the aligner setup. And that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is they look at this and they go, that's the amount of IPR, but then you end up with more binding and the teeth won't move. Hmm. That's a that's, that's a really really good point. It's yeah. easy for us to to not associate the IPR to the other movements to because it's all inter interrelated. Totally interrelated. That's what people forget. Like, now this is what I call cartoon odontics. Yeah, mm. yeah, it looks great, but are you going to be able to deliver it? And this is where no technician can shoot, can do this and can predict it. This is your intellectual property and your skill, and this is why. You guys as dentists should be doing this and not Smile Club Direct mm, mm. For, new, for numerous other reasons as well. But that's the main reason. Mm. So what if I came to you, Jeff, and said, Jeff, you're not taking out 3-2. <laughs> How would you manage that patient? Um, is there a way forward or is it is it more of a education communication to, to get them down the path of extraction? I think it's a combination. Mm. I think it's a, you know, obviously you've got to educate them. I think um, you get, you'll get, and I think you got to educate them from the point of view we might we might get more recession. So, for example, your three two is you you're moving back, but you've got to move it back quite a bit from where it was initially. Mm. But you look at your initial photos. We have to make a clinical a clinical decision about how far do you want to how far do you want to move that tooth back into the bone? Yeah. Is 1.5 millimetres, is that significant enough? See, I look at that clinically and go, I really, if that was me, I'd like to move back at least three millimetres, three to four, from a clinical point of view. Now, with a non-extraction approach, you're only going to be doing 1.5. That's your best scenario, my dad. Okay, that's your best scenario. So you'd have to educate the patient that depending on what their chief complaint is, and I'm sure your chief complaint is that the recession on that lower lip lateral? That would have to be one of the main ones. Then you have to, then you've got to say to yourself, okay, how much are we going to improve it and give that patient 
an idea, well, we're only going to get 30% approved. Hmm. So that's one part. The other part is you're going to have a real issue non-extraction because even if you look at the upper, look at the upper movements as well. And I don't think people do this enough hmm. because to, to, to fix up the crossbar, you're going to have to move the upper lateral by 1.7 millimetres and also the upper canine. So you are now making these, this, this canine also prone to some resorption as well. And this has happened to me with one of my patients who kept on saying, I want more expansion, I want more expansion. Mm -hmm. And stupidly, they did more expansion. And we ended up causing significant recession. And so mm -hmm. you've got to be careful how far can you move these teeth as part of the biology of bone. Unfortunately, it's not scientific. Mm. You know, I wish it was, but it's, it's not. But um, so we're so, thinking about biotype. We're thinking about the bony profile, but there's yeah, there's a bit of experience that comes into understanding that, I guess. Unfortunately, this is the this is the art part, and not the science part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because when I look at your biotype, yeah, it's not too bad, apart from that lower left lateral. Mm. Yeah. So I would say clinically, I'm not too concerned, but I am a bit concerned about that upper left lateral. Now, the other, if I'm not mistaken, when we discussed this last time, did we have a bolted analysis done? Yes, we did. Yeah. Uh, small laterals. Who's that bolt ones? I think it's under tables. Oh, yeah. Yep. Thank you. So, you, so we move this across. Okay. So, you've got a mandibular excess. I would have thought you, I would have thought you had a bigger mandibular excess than that. Because to me, your upper laterals look pretty look small. Mm. Yeah, I would have said you, I would have thought clinically it would be at three mils, mm. which would also tend to indicate a good reason to do a lower incisor extraction. Yeah. Uh, Where, what's your Boltons that you're looking at? What's the cutoff for you? And when you think about that, like, is it over a certain number? You're like, no, definitely extraction. Oh, if it was over four or five, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, as soon as you hit five millimeters, you've got to you've got to say to yourself, yeah. Um, there's another part that we've got to talk about this as well. As soon as you say five millimeters, well, that's a lower incisor too. Mm. Yeah, and, and which means you either have to do IPR to five millimeters, which is a lot of IPR over six teeth. Mm. The other part, the other thing that you've got to look at from a clinical point of view with you is your minimal overbite, because any non-extraction approach. Is going to flare the teeth forward mm. and open the bite. Now, it's less so with a line of therapy, because if you were doing that with fixed braces, you'd be really concerned about opening that bite. Mm. So, but if mm. you if you decide to extract a lower incisor, you, you're going to be far more controlling of that overbite situation. The other thing you mentioned, I think, the other time was that with aligners, we've got that plastic in between the back teeth. I'm also a bruxer, so yeah. that we might actually get some intrusion naturally from that as well, yeah. which is helpful me, in this situation. Yeah, to me, aligners are the treatment of choice in a minimal overbite or even an open bite situation. Yeah, yeah. I would sense. rather treat, treat you with aligners than with braces in those cases. That's the converse is true, though, as well. That mm. in a deep bite case, a line of therapy can be really difficult to extrude the posterior teeth. can be very difficult. So opening the bite is a challenge in a lot of cases with a line of therapy. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It makes sense from the the pressure on the back teeth, especially as I'm a Bruxer or a splinted knight. So I'm going to give my aligners a run for their money for sure. Um, I wanted to just mention one other thing just quickly. We're talking about recession lower right there, three three, uh, four three, sorry, four 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 five. If we just look at the way that this um, the bone expands here, um, I see that, and I'm really really concerned about the lower right. Do you feel the same way, or is there is there a bit more to it? are totally concerned because if we're going to expand the lower, the lower to that level, we're going to have to, if we go into the upper, I'll guarantee you've got to expand the upper to the same amount because you've got a perfect occlusal relationship that it mm. has to end. Yep, so you're, you're doing a lot of expansion in both the upper and the lower. Yeah. So now you've got two different areas of unpredictability, of the lack of predictability. Mm. So, yeah. so the chance of success, you know, even though it looks like a great picture, yeah, to get a good clinical result at the end would be difficult. The yeah. other problem that you've got, if we have a look at the lower occlusal view here. The photo or the... Uh, uh, the, the clincheck. Okay, so let's, let's do some movements on that lower occlusal. Okay, so when we move... So you can see when we're, as, as they're moving, as they're moving this to... You've got, you've still got this constraint going on. Hmm. So unless you make sure you clear that those contact points, and you're rotating this tooth at the same time, so really what you need to do is get this tooth through first, and then start the rotation. Hmm. If you were doing this as a non-extraction case, otherwise we get binding and you just freeze. Would that be right? Sorry, we'd get binding and then the teeth would not be moving. Is that what absolutely. we're absolutely? Yep, absolutely. This is something um, we'll do another episode on these kinds of tips as well because that's something I've personally experienced <laughs> um, and learned from very quickly. So that's really we, good. We all have, and we and we can get frustrated, believe aligners don't work, and yet if you get these clinical tips right, they can work very effectively. Mm, mm, makes a huge difference. If we go back to just up and then this tab up here, sorry. Yep. So this is where we're at today. That's correct. So now the question comes as to these other attachments that you've got. So these are the newer Invisalign attachments, the newer optimised ones, which are a lot better than the previous ones because they've got much better surface area compared to the other ones. But in all honesty, they're just a modification of this bevel, this horizontal bevel attachment that mm. we talk about. And all we're, all we're trying to do is get as much surface area. Now, the only problem with this, these can work actually quite well now. The only problem, though, is that you can't, this is the active component right here. And if, you, if the dentist or the hygienist inadvertently takes away a bit of that active surface, you've lost all of the pushing part of the liner, so it becomes inactive. So you've got to be really careful when you put your attachments on that you've actually got contact on those active components. Hmm. That's why I pref still prefer the horizontal bevel attachment because it's far more forgiving to the average practitioner. And I delegate everything to my hygienist. So I'm really into making sure everything is forgiving. Hmm. Would you now, then be concerned or considering the fact that that would make it a bit harder to get them in and out? Absolutely. Well, that's well, depending on the size of the attachments. Mm -hmm. So, for example, here on your lateral incisor, we go to your, if we go to your lateral incisor, this is what we call the this is what we call the sash attachment, mm. which is basically 
it will give you a, a control of the extrusive component, but also a control of the tipping. So because if you just have the horizontal, full horizontal attachment, you lose the control of the tipping. So this is a really good appliance if you want to do a combination of both, which most patients or most teeth require that type of combination of both. But if there's one that's really overriding, like the lower left canine in the situation, mm. I would go with that the attachment that's going to fix up that problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And here's another, here are these other optimised attachments, which I personally don't like at all, okay? Because here are the two surfaces, very minimal. Once again, if you lose the surface, the active component, you won't you won't get you won't get proper um, mm. tooth movement. So, what would you be I putting would be on very that? Very careful with that. Now, the other thing which people don't realize, they look at that, they go, "This is fantastic." Okay. Now, David, I'm going to ask you the question. You've got a four six here. Okay. You've got a minimal overbite. The last thing you want to do, honestly, is to extrude that tooth, mm. which could open the bite further. Okay. So yeah. you would so when I see a minimal overbite like that, I will go in here and zero out the, the extrusions. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we go in, if we go into the upper arch, so the upper's not bad. Okay. Mm. The upper's mm. not bad because there's really minimal extrusion. The two seven is probably extruded. So if we go into the two seven. See, I, I would zero out the two seven yeah. extrusion as well. There's no Especially like the where class one molar and canine, like there's nothing really wrong with the posterior bite. There's right. a few rotations and things, but the, exactly. we don't want to broke break <laughs> what's you know already functioning for me as well. Exactly exactly right. Yeah, so and you, you know, you've got this type of um this is the so if we look at if we look at the two four, for example, here, yeah, I'm not even too sure why you really need an attachment on the two. Mm, it's not moving a lot. In all, in all honesty. A little bit of rotation. It's, it's, it's pretty minimal, Miles. I mean, if you didn't rotate that too, would it really matter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah. once again, for patient comfort and to get it, to be able to get the aligners in and out, it would be nice to minimise attachments as well. Mm. Because what I would like to do in your case, so here's your 2 here's your 2-1. So your 2-1 It's got some intrusion there, and you've got just for people listening, be aware whenever you've got intrusion of any of these teeth, you've got a reciprocal extrusive effect. So you need attachments on the, the posterior teeth to as a as a retention mechanism, and especially on those upper laterals. That's one of the biggest mistakes we make is we intrude the upper centrals, and the upper laterals, the liners start to extrude out. Mm. So I, I think this really. Just about never a case where you don't want to put attachments on the upper laterals. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, again, a tooth that's often lost, <laughs> it doesn't track. Um, can I ask a question just about the centrals? I'm thinking from a final um, outcome point of view, more of a restorative dentist point of view, um, a little bit of IPR in between those centrals would improve the fact that they're quite ovoid, ovoid sorry, and I think we'd have quite large gingival and incisal embrasures at the end. Yep. Yep. Um, is that something you're thinking about and it's something you routinely do? Uh, it is, but to be honest, I would probably do that in the refinement part. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay? I mean, if you really... You know, yeah, see where we get to and then... Yeah. Yeah. Because I think sometimes you're going to overthink, you know, 
overthink everything. You and I think the the other thing, yeah, you know, we talk about refinement, and one refinement is not a problem at all because if you if we use the analogy of fixed braces, we have finishing hmm. in fixed braces. So even though we get everything right, and then six months of finishing, and I think you've got to think of refinement as the same thing. Okay, now if you so you want to spend your time here planning the case so your refinement is going to be maybe 10 or 12 aligners to finish off. Mm, mm. The mistakes we make is when refinement's another 35 aligners. And it's happened, oh, it's happened to me. You, know, yep. you go, what's happened here? So mm. I, that type of real fine-tuning, I, I personally would plan in, 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 the, uh, in the refinement phase. So that was a lot of information, Jeff. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again to talk through these different points. Um, we are going to continue with this case, obviously, as I actually get my aligners, have the tooth removed. I'm going to talk a little bit about my personal experience. And hopefully that actually gives us all as clinicians who provide aligners um, some insights into what our patients might feel as well. Um, I really think that is a useful thing, um, but not everyone else should go through an extraction for no reason. Um, <laughs> thanks again, Jeff, for joining us. I look forward to all the future episodes. If anyone wants to learn more, dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed, 10% off all the courses. Jeff's a great guy. He's teaching us a lot of stuff. I'm really excited. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Really enjoyed the session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.